Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. Well, it's not sharp, so the only thing is the axe might bounce back and hit him in the head. He won't cut himself. He might break a bone. Something odd happened in the early weeks of March. As the equity markets were bouncing lower, and I do mean bouncing, some days the S&P 500 index traded over 200 points between the high and low of the day. Bonds weren't, well, acting like bonds. As the equity markets were selling off, so too were the bond markets. And not just the obvious high yield. U.S. Treasuries were weaker. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury jumped from 54 basis points to 119 basis points in seven trading days. This wasn't normal. As the weeks passed, the bond markets have returned to normal, with a little help from the Fed. A Fed that is now buying bond exchange-traded funds. What does that mean for the future of the bond markets? And how should we be positioned we are indeed heading into a recovery from COVID-19. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. Uh, I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. And joining me today is uh, my colleague, Kevin Headland. Kevin? Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's the cue. All right. So um, before we get, we're going to talk about fixed income. It's been a really interesting environment with fixed income over the last couple of months, as we've seen in March, we saw fixed income uh, like bonds actually down. And this was across the board where we saw treasury yields uh, spiked up from basically a half a percent to uh, 1.2%. Uh, we saw uh, corporate bonds uh, sell off. And then, and, and this was really kind of an interesting thing where it was a function of the equity market. It seems really odd, but it was a function of the equity markets and the margin calls and the forced selling that went on there that drove kind of the forced selling into the bond markets. But since then, we've had the bond markets rally. Uh, they've been supported by the Fed, kind of back to uh, traditional characteristics that they have historically offered. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that with our guests. Um, but before we get into that, we're going to uh, go through our what you need to know. Kevin, I'm going to start with my what you need to know. Um, and it does relate to the bond markets, but I'm going to talk about flows. So, you know, I, I've, we've touched on this in the past. Um, and the final numbers from the Investment Company Institute in the United States came through in terms of the uh, sales or, in this case, redemptions of mutual funds in the United States. And I was actually quite surprised in some respects and not surprised in others. So here's here's how it broke down. Uh Equity funds saw net redemptions of $46 billion. So it was the highest level of, well, actually, you know, we saw selling in December, but, you know, so equity funds continue to sell or be redeemed. Uh, balanced funds saw net redemptions of $47 billion. So $47 billion pulled out of balanced funds. That was 
a very, very high level. We hadn't seen that. Uh, not even in, in um, uh, December of 2018 did you see that. Uh, and what's really interesting here is that, which is somewhat typical, and, and it just it pains me to see this, but retail investors were selling at the bottom of the market again. Uh, we saw this in December of 2018. We saw this in March of 2009. We've seen this through other bear markets and corrections when investors tend to capitulate. And when the markets are down, as they were in March, that's when the peak selling comes and these investors are locking in their losses. And every day that you're out of the rally, you know, it, that loss is more and more permanent. Um, but here's, here's the really surprising thing, Kevin in that we also saw no, now normally when you get the redemptions on uh, equities you, the flows tend to go into bonds and we've seen positive bond fund flows um, for years really going back to the great financial crisis and then you know uh, bond funds just continue to take in money uh, as interest rates fell and bonds moved up in value but in March we saw net outflows of $255 billion. Uh, we've never seen this, this level of selling in bonds, and it was across the board in the United States, so it wasn't just any one area. It wasn't just high yield, for example. It was you know, taxable bonds, investment-grade bonds, high-yield bonds, government bonds, municipal bonds, multi-sector bonds. I mean, you name it, every category. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, yeah, bonds had a tough month in the month of March, but here's the perfect example of why you don't want to panic and don't want to sell it at you know, what looks like a bottom or when the markets are down, because look at what happened in April, where we saw a rebound in bonds and bond funds you know, as the environment became more normalized, as the Federal Reserve announced its programs to backstop uh, bonds, the, the credit markets uh, in the United States, as the Federal Reserve um, announced that it would be buying bond ETFs. And so investors that panic, that panic always is costly and um, never so more is now. So that's, I think the, the great lesson out of here is what we talked about in terms of our prior episodes, you know, how do you position for recovery? Well, don't panic, rebalance and all that. You know, what do we do? Don't try and time the markets. Certainly don't sell at a bottom, you know, yet, we saw investors do the exact same thing. One month later, you know, the markets are up 30% off the lows and sitting in cash misses all of that. Your thoughts on that, Kev? Yeah, it's interesting, with, especially with the, the fixing a market. And I, I think there was a lot of uh, uncertainty around the fixing a market, even leading into uh, this uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Investors and, and, and media were talking about uh, companies that are overlevered and, and the risk uh, there, uh, the risk of fallen angels, which are companies uh, cr uh, with a credit rating of triple B falling to double B, which goes from investment grade to high yield, and the risks surrounding that. And when things start to unravel uh, COVID-19 and the equity markets start to sell off, then you start seeing corporate bonds and, and anything that is, or investors believe there is risk, they sell it. Right. And that goes down lower. And then, of course, as you said, that that kind of kicked in some of these margin calls for for certain uh, investors. And then you got to sell the low risk uh, assets, which actually did really well, like long term treasury bonds, like those plain vanilla bonds. 
to fund those margin calls. And I remember around that time, the amount of questions we received from, from advisors is how can bonds go down and equities go down on the same days? And it was a very um, interesting environment and really understanding the nuances of how the markets were reacting to the news uh, really uh, helped put the picture in place. Exactly. So lesson be learned, kids. Lesson be learned. Kev, you're what you need to know. Yeah, it's along the same uh, same vein. Uh, you know, I, I follow the the high yield market uh, pretty closely and I get a lot of information, data on high yield. And, and what people tend to really focus on is the default risk and the default level. Because really when you own a, a bond, the only issue is, is that the company defaults on their coupon obligation or defaults on paying you back the principal at maturity. So default is so important because that's where you're not gonna get your money back. So you wanna avoid those defaults, you know, regardless of what the yields are, it's all about defaults. And recently the default uh, level in the last 12 months has increased to 4.7%. It's actually the highest trailing 12 month default rate we have seen since uh, coming out of the financial crisis. Um, this is back in 2010 where we saw these levels default. Now, this big spike in default tends to, to almost spook investors and say, oh, here it comes, here's the level defaults. However, we have to understand the concentration of where these defaults are happening. Uh, these defaults are happening in three main sectors, that is energy, uh, retail, and telecommunications. You got uh, and cable and satellite as well. Now, what's interesting to see is that uh, over the last, um, or year to date, shall I say, we've had a record 19 companies file for bankruptcy. Uh, that is a record in the, for the month of April. Uh, and the previous high was 17 companies in March and April of 2009. We've also, so far this year, from a, a, a par value or amount of, of bonds uh, available that have defaulted so far this year, has is already the sixth largest amount of defaults for a full year. Now again, that tends to spook investors. But looking at where it is, some of the largest defaults have happened so far this year. For example, Intelsat, a satellite company, $14.4 billion, the eighth largest on record. We had in the retail space, both Neiman Marcus and uh, JCPenney uh, default on their obligations. So again, it's very concentrated. And really my, what you need to know is this, is when you're investing in high yield or any fixed income and investing in ETFs, you kind of get the good and the bad, you get everything. You can't avoid some of these poorly rated or poorly constructed fixed income uh, bonds. But in active management, this is where you can take advantage of some of the dislocations that exist in the market and really go after a very attractive investment that has a very low risk of defaulting. And by doing your research and understanding what those bonds are, and of course having an expertise, which you know most of our portfolio managers are, are well-versed in in terms of fixed income, having the expertise really allows you to end up winning the game over the long term. I think what people also forget when when we talk about that is like, okay, so the risk of default is up there. Say, let's say it is, let's round up, let's say it's 5%. So I have a portfolio, 5% of my portfolio defaults. Now my portfolio is worth 95 cents instead of a dollar, right? But that 95 cents is still yielding 8%, right? Which means, you know, like, and that's to assume that that default, you have zero uh, recourse, zero recovery, in that, which doesn't tend to be the case. I mean, maybe in this environment, the recovery rates won't be 60%. They might be 40%, but still. So instead of you know being completely to zero, it's 40% recovery on that 5%, which means it's not a complete 5% wash. Now it's 2%. 
right? And, and, and then, you know, you still have the coupon on the other 95% of your portfolio that hasn't defaulted. So, you know, it's, it's not like a, a, almost like a zero sum game that, you know, it's either you get it or you get zero. There are many different shades in between and just the default rate going higher doesn't mean complete loss of, of your capital. Many times the default is a restructure and, you know, you, you still end up with most of, of your capital or all of your capital and a, and a lower coupon. I mean, there are different things that point being is that the default rate doesn't necessarily say everything about it. You know, the recovery rates in there. And to your point, more importantly, active management is absolutely key. If there's characteristics that you can recognize or diversification in a portfolio to, to help avoid some of these defaults or put yourself in a position to even benefit from a default, Right. There are some cases when, you know, some some holders of that bond get out when once the company defaults at 20 cents on the dollar and that bond appreciates back to 40 cents on the dollar. And so there are opportunities to make money in any type of environment. And yeah, we're going to see defaults in this environment. As you said, we've seen them increase. That's not surprising given the environment that we're in, nor should we be entirely fearful about it because, again, there are opportunities to, to take advantage um, in any market environment. And again, I think, as you mentioned, with the, the Federal Reserve uh, announcing they're going to stepping in into uh, both the investment grade market as well, to some degree, the high yield market, it's helped put a bit of, of confidence there. Uh, but it's not going to be a full-blown credit crisis. There are companies that will go bankrupt and, and disappear and, and never come back. We know that. But again, it's all about picking your spots and, and understanding the risks and the relative returns. And we've heard this for how long? I don't know how many years now we've heard that you know, oh, looming corporate debt bubble, looming credit crisis. There's credit crisis on the horizon. This, you know what? I haven't seen it. I don't buy into that. I don't think it's the case. And certainly with what the Fed has done, the Fed is saying, eh, if there was risk of it, it's certainly been dissipated now. We're going to backstop uh, these environments to make sure liquidity stays uh, stays in the system and the the markets are functioning properly. So with that, you know, I think that's a great intro to uh, what we have next with um, Chuck Tomes and Tom Goggins, who are part of the strategic income team at Manulife Investment Management. We'll talk to them about the fixed income markets in just a second. Well, at this point, it's my pleasure to bring back a couple guests to Investments Unplugged that we haven't had for a little while. Uh, Chuck Tomes, Associate Portfolio Manager, and Tom Goggins, Senior Portfolio Manager and Senior Managing Director with our strategic income team based out of Boston. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on Investments Unplugged. Thanks. Thank you for having us. So we are, uh, someone told me today we're about 10 weeks into the uh, COVID-19 lockdowns here in Canada. Um, uh, maybe not quite as long in the United States, uh, but during that time and, and since the top of the market in February, we've seen a lot of really interesting activity um, in the equity markets and the fixed income markets and the commodity markets. Uh, let me get your take on it first. Tom, why don't you start in terms of uh, your overall thoughts on the market activity and, and I'll let you pick which one you want to focus on, but on the market activity that we've seen from the top to the lows in March, and then the recovery that we've seen since then, uh, what do you think of it? Um, it's stunning. I would say that is the first word. But um, I, you know, I think initially people were focused on just the horrific situation in terms of the number of people dying and the 
daily count. I think the markets have moved on from that, and now it's focused on the recovery, and certainly the, the price of energy and oil have got a lot of attention there also. I think that was a double whammy effect in the markets. And then the kind of dislocation, I would say, in terms of what's been going on in the equity market, certainly we're fixed income geeks, so don't, you know, really not experts there, but certainly the recovery in equities has been pretty impressive. Yeah, and unprecedented. Yeah, and I think um, we were probably in the school of not being impressed with uh, Jerome Powell prior to the crisis, but I think he really stepped it up when the virus initially hit. You know, he really went all in on all the tools, not all the tools, but a lot of the tools in the Fed toolbox um, that they rolled out in 2008 and 2009, which took them maybe a year or two to um, move on. He threw it all in there right away, which I think was necessary and really uh, kept the markets flowing. Because the biggest concern that um, policymakers have is about liquidity and the freezing up of the markets. And I think that that was the best thing that happened. It was kind of a good template for the rest of the world to, to see what would happen. And all the steps that they've taken since then, I think, have gone to um, reassuring the market that the Fed's there. Now, the consequences, long-term consequences, you know, what the price that will be paid for that um, is we won't know until a year or two out. But, you know, initially right now you're just doing a triage and just putting, you know, some pressure on, on the wound and just uh, hoping that, um, you know, we can get to some semblance of, of order here. So I'm going to stop there and let Chucky uh, have something to say. No, I would say it's similar to what Tom has mentioned. And, and one of the, the most interesting things is how, quick you've seen uh, a coordinated effort to induce an enormous amount of liquidity to help uh, stem some of the concerns about this going from a health crisis into a financial crisis and and you've seen the the global capital markets react accordingly to that and as tom mentioned the amount that has been done in a very short period of time both from a monetary policy standpoint as well as from a, a government standpoint in, in not only in North America, but also in, in other major economies around the world. I think what it does is it does provide a, a backdrop where once you do get on the other side of this pandemic, it, it creates an environment where you could see this create a somewhat of a tailwind for certain, whether they be economies or certain parts of the global fixed income markets to, to perform well coming out of this, but as uh, was mentioned, I mean, you think about um, what this this self-imposed shutdown has done and this pandemic has done is really made um, individuals rethink a, a lot of the ways that they're gonna be going about not only their day-to-day, -day, but also companies rethink um, exactly what their, their workforce is gonna look like going forward, what their profiles are gonna look like going forward in terms of how much cash flow, exactly who their customers are going to be, et cetera. And, and in some cases, you will see certain areas bounce back fairly quickly, but then in other cases, um, it's going to take a little bit longer. And then unfortunately, in, in some other cases, 
there there could be some some companies that that unfortunately do not make it um, due to numerous different factors. But for us, we always just look at it. Um, what can we do to first protect against the potential of of a drawdown? But secondly, as Tom mentioned, if there are opportunities that do present themselves in the back of volatility, um, ensuring that we're we're ready and, and able to take advantage of those opportunities when they do come up. I think you know we we certainly agree with you in terms of of the speed in which that the federal or the Federal Reserve has responded. Uh, they've preempted a lot of the recessionary pressures that we would have seen or will see uh, through through the tr- this trough and and helped I think set up for what is going to be a, I think a decent recovery um, and this is something that we didn't see as fast in 2008 and there are a lot of comparisons to this recessionary environment and the Great Depression I think a lot of them are a little misplaced uh, but the one is that it took years for the central bank and the federal government to respond following the great, great depression. In this case, the governments have, well, given the governments have engineered this sudden stop, uh, the onus was on them to provide some kind of support and they've, they've actually come through. So I, I would agree in, in that they've done a pretty good job there. One of the more interesting aspects to what the fed has done is the program in which they, the federal reserve will be buying bond ETFs. Now this, it, often what we say is, you know, don't fight the Fed. That's usually in the context of the equity market. And we can debate whether the Fed has actually pumped up the equity market uh, through like monetary inflation. This actually, I think, falls right in line with the fixed income markets or credit markets. So what do you think of the Fed buying? Uh, Chuck, I'll throw it to you first. What do you think of the Fed buying bond ETFs? And does that make your job easier, harder, you know, make active management stand out more? What, what do you think of it? And one of the interesting things that you've seen has been throughout this, the, the fact, the difference between headlines and the actual specifics. And, and what you've seen in this environment is the headlines come out and say, you know, the Fed can buy uh, ETFs. And it makes it seem from, from what you'd see just from a headline perspective, like they can just step in, buy ETFs, no problem. But when you actually look at the specifics of what the Fed uh, laid out in terms of what they're they're able to buy. Yes, they are able to buy ETFs, but it is very specific in terms of the, the ETFs have to be trading at a discount. And what you have seen during this time frame is ETFs have become a bigger owner in terms of the overall AUM of the U.S. high yield market. It is still not a majority in terms of looking at the percentage ownership of that high yield market as a whole. Um, ETFs are a portion of it, but what they are uh, a much larger portion of is the the amount of volume in terms of trading volume on a daily basis, where they are a much bigger proponent of that daily trading volume. So what the Fed was looking to do was really step in and, and ensure that the the lack of liquidity you were seeing, because during the time of volatility, you saw some of these ETFs go from very steep premiums to very large discounts in a very short period of time. And the tracking error relative to the underlying uh, indices increased significantly, which is something that concerns some people. So what the Fed was looking at was when you did see a very deep discount, they wanted to be that liquidity provider. And it's understandable why that 
that lack of liquidity was taking place because there really have been no regulation changes or significant regulation changes. I guess there have been tweaks in terms of um, banks being being that liquidity provider like they were pre-financial crisis as now they are more matchmakers. When we're looking at it, it's a piece of the puzzle when we're looking at how we're going to allocate capital and where we're going to be essentially avoiding or, or going into. And we do believe that going forward, what, what you will see, similar to what I said, where some areas will respond well coming, on the other side, coming out of this pandemic, other areas it's going to take a little longer, and then there's going to be some um, areas that, unfortunately, some companies that do not necessarily make it and, and probably have to go into bankruptcy. You're already starting to see that happen. And we believe, in, no matter if you're looking at corporate credit, no matter if you're looking at uh, emerging markets, et cetera, going forward, there is going to be a massive differentiation. Where, where you're going to see a much broader divergence between um, securities that perform well and others that, that unfortunately come under continued pressure uh, for some time. And, and as I mentioned, ultimately some that, that default. So when we look at it, it really is an environment where active management, in our view, is becomes that much more important going forward. And when we're looking at it, yes, the Fed buying um, ETFs, it does provide a, another level of liquidity into the markets and should act as a, a substantial liquidity provider. But you know, and I'll let Tom get into some of these details. Some of the changes that we made, it also, when you look at the, the bonds that they're able to buy in terms of the maturity profiles, in terms of the ratings profiles, all the specifics that the Fed laid out that really didn't come through in some of the headlines that really gave us a, a good indication of where we should be allocating capital because you will see that divergence as well um, occur in, in some specific issues, even outside of the ETFs. Yeah, Ke- Kevin and I were chatting about this offline. Kevin, maybe you want to yeah, ask the question, but we, you know, it, it was somewhat like if the Fed's buying bond ETFs, why don't we just buy what the Fed's buying? Yeah, no, I, I was going to add here and, and really I, what I've been seeing and you see it with the, the decrease in high yield spreads and high yield yields is the Fed has almost done exactly what they wanted to do with not even spending a dollar. They haven't even started buying ETFs or buying bonds outright, and they've brought yields down from over 11% down to slightly under 8%. And again, kind of backstopping that really uh, um, massive outflow of of capital from the fixed income market, uh, like we might have uh, experienced in in the financial crisis, and, and kind of backstop that issue and brought a bit of confidence back to the market. Uh, but Chuck, I, I, I see what you're, you know, agree with your, what you're saying here now is there is still a massive opportunity on an individual specific level. Um, and perhaps uh, in a high yield, you even have to be more attention now more than ever uh, because of, of what the Fed is doing. So Tom, let's, let's shift to, we know what the Fed has done. We know what they're going to be doing now. We also know that we're near the trough. Like, it, it, barring a second wave, and which we can't predict, you know, barring uh, an extension of the lockdowns, which we can't predict, we're going to assume that you know, we're near the trough for unemployment, like for the labor market uh, job losses. We're near the trough in terms of the, the GDP contraction. You know, as things start to open up, it's not going to be immediate, but we're going to have a slow grind back to where we were. So as you start to think about a recovery, what is the team doing in the portfolio? Great question, because, you know, it's one thing to have this type of 
scenario and then um, you know, what, what are we doing to respond to it. So at the end of March, you know, the team got together and said, you know, this is historic and we want to have more risk in the portfolio coming out of this dislocation than we did coming into it or as we sat there on March 25th. So on that day, we, um, we said, okay, over the next month, we want to add 500 basis points uh, exposure and high yield, about 200 basis points in investment grade corporates. And when you get these type of opportunities that are historic by any you know, measurement, you know, the returns that you can get in high yield out 12 to 18 months are exceptional. And so when you take a look at our allocation to high yield and investment grade, they were relatively low coming into the, into the virus. Um, and when you compare where we were at our height in terms of high yield exposure 2014, we were in the mid-40s. You know, we're in the high teens at the end of March. So taking high yield to the mid-20s is not that, you know, it's significant. It's meaningful. But, you know, we're still relatively low from a um, historical max standpoint. So that's what we, we did was we wanted to expand U.S. corporate exposure in, in the portfolio in, in high yield, um, it wasn't so much from a sector standpoint in rotating in and out of different sectors. It was really picking category winners, if you will. So a good example would be Hospital Corp of America. They did a deal in January, a uh, coupon of 3.9% in 2030. At the end of March, beginning of April, it was in the low 80s. So what you pick up with something like that is a very low dollar price. You know, you have upwards of almost 20 points of appreciation there. So when we bought that, that was in the low 80s. Today, it's in the high 90s. And it had a yield of 6% for arguably the best for-profit hospital chain in, in the country. The other two major competitors in the high-yield arena just, you know, are, are actually concerned about liquidity. Airlines, same thing. We are... Um, recent fallen angel like Delta going from triple B to double B. You know, they came to market for a five-year bond, um, and we were able to pick that up at 6.75% for a five-year piece of paper. Again, extremely compelling. Delta's going to be here this year, next year, the following year. So again, in within each category, we want to go with the winners. And, and that's essentially what we've done uh, when we take a look at our additions to the portfolio, concentrated on what we think are the winners, uh, names that we have high conviction in, and add to that in a meaningful way. We think it's going to be a, a slower recovery, uh, faster than perhaps what we saw in 2008, because it's not a financial type crisis, um, but perhaps not as fast as some believe with a recovery by the end of this year. We think it could be much more into 2022, to be honest with you. Um, where do you see it as you start to think about a recovery and plot for a recovery in the funds? Yeah, I think, I think Chuck, you mentioned it before. Well, we, we don't see a V-shape, but it's certainly, uh, you know, hope for that, but that's not really, we think, in the cards. It's more like a U-shape, and that's what we're, we're thinking. It's, it's also we need to monitor how states and cities open uh, some as we speak here today, you know, some some cities are still not looking to open for a couple months, which I think is is um, you know challenging given that what's been happening most recently with 
uh, you know, the, the virus um, count. Um, but yeah, we need to monitor what's taking place with more high-frequency economic numbers. You know, so the in, in the U.S., something like um, claims every Thursday morning, the claims number, see what's going on with unemployment claims, uh, the drawdowns in terms of energy exp energy um, usage, which come out on a Wednesday, um, railroad car car loadings. You know, getting a picture for some things that are more high frequency that we know have a real uh, pulse on what's going on in the economy as we speak. And then, uh, Chuck, I want to leave you with this last question before we get into what you guys have been doing during the coronavirus. Um, when you look at how investors have been responding, uh, it's been quite interesting. So, for example, in March, based on the ICI data, the Investment Company Institute, we saw $255 billion being redeemed in bond funds in the month of March. You know, obviously a reaction by investors to the credit markets, uh, well, bonds all across the board being down. Um, and there was, a, I think, a lot loss of confidence. Now we've seen the bond markets respond, but you know, what's your advice to clients or to investors uh, at this point, given given what we've seen in the markets, what we may continue to see, you know, what what do you tell them? Like Sunday night dinner, what do you tell your your extended family? Yeah, it's one of those things that people need to realize. No one really knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, etc. But when you think and think out a little bit and take a a little bit longer of a view. As Tom mentioned, as I've mentioned, there are a lot of opportunities, and as you and Kevin have mentioned as well, there are a lot of opportunities in many different areas of the global financial markets that are very attractive right now. And, and it's one of those things that as long as you are getting compensated adequately for the risk that you're taking, and you can withstand a little bit longer of a viewpoint, then you can take advantage of those opportunities. If you're looking at seeing something snap back right away, then you're probably leaving yourself at risk of being disappointed. Um, but even outside of that, when you're thinking about the overall asset allocation, you need to remember kind of what, what for an individual, what their ultimate goal is and, and what they're looking to achieve uh, with that overall asset allocation. In any short period of time, there can be uh, some hiccups, but you need to really take a, a deep dive into what were the drivers of those hiccups? Was it, something that was just more liquidity driven was it something that really changed the outlook of either an economy or a company and if so then maybe you need to rethink that but overall what you did see in in the march time frame as you mentioned some of the the concerns in the the weak performance for fixed income in in financial markets across the board uh, a good portion of it though was driven by just the lack of liquidity and and you had a lot of different factors at play whether it be uh, some people needing to raise cash for margin calls or raise cash because of those outflows. And that really drove um, volatility across all different parts of global fixed income areas that like say some of the high quality government bonds were, were performing outside of the box of what they usually would do. You saw correlations basically all increase uh, close to one at some points during uh, that period of time. But ultimately when we look at it, you know, that's what we look to do. We always have conversations with within our team constantly and consistently about, well, with this move, is, is has it created an opportunity? 
Uh, and if so, what is the most efficient way to, to allocate capital to take advantage of it, to be able to provide our ultimate goal uh, over time for what we're looking to deliver to, to our investors and people that uh, have entrusted assets with us. Very well said. All right, gentlemen, um, I, I said earlier, it's been 10 weeks now that we've been in this lockdown. So I've got a few questions for you in terms of how you're managing through it. Tommy, let me start with you. Are you doing more reading or more watching? <laughs> uh, more reading. More reading? What was the last book or what, what's uh, your last recommendation that we should be reading? Uh, no, I don't have time for books, just uh, research. But yeah, buy, yeah, really boring stuff like you know, fixed income. Oh, my God. Is it bonus time already? Is that what's going on here? We're getting a lot closer. All right, so all fixed income stuff. Uh, Chuck, uh, you, more reading or more watching? Uh, definitely more reading. I mean, and not to just sound like Tom, at, at the, at, for a good portion of it, now I have gone into to a couple books to, to um, read, read at night. But what you did see for a long period of time, there was something new getting delivered by whether it be the Federal Reserve or another central bank around the world. And going through all the details, it takes time to make sure that, as I mentioned, you know, the headlines say one thing, but you, when you actually dive into the details and see exactly what's coming out, then then you can, um, it can be a little bit of a different story. So uh, the the more research report driven reading at the beginning, uh, now uh, moving more towards books and watching. Yeah, guys, uh, uh, it sounds almost almost planted that you're talking about more reading but uh you know tommy i know your history is really on the credit side it's really all about the research of the credit uh, right now and that's really how you guys are going to do a differentiate yourself going forward on so uh, on the watching on the watching uh, chuck what was the last thing that you watched and don't say tiger king don't say tiger king i don't know if i should admit it that's what i was gonna say um everybody was talking about it and i ended up uh watching it but it was um i have been doing more more listening uh to podcasts and found one a good one investments unplugged so i've been going through that um over and over yeah it's timeless it's always timeless tommy what what have you been watching uh it's so boring bloomberg and cnbc and the weather channel my God, I was expecting at least one of you to say Last Dance, which is just an absolutely phenomenal documentary that out there. But So if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. Uh, Last Dance, uh, the whole documentary on the, on the Bulls. I was afraid you're going to start asking me questions because I haven't finished it yet. So I... You know how it ends, though. I mean, it's pretty obvious how it ends. <laughs> you know, any, anyone that, don't anyone don't that... spoil it for me, Philip. All right, fine, fine. The only one person that doesn't know how it ends is probably my son because he wasn't born uh, born then at that time. Um, all right, so last one for each of you because I know I've been going through this. My wife put together a list of all the things around the house that we've been meaning to do for so long, and we've been knocking that list off pretty well. Um, so, Tommy, your house as a result of, of the lockdowns, cleaner or more upheaval? Oh, definitely more upheaval. I got two college kids home, and they, they, you know, my son gets up at eleven o'clock and starts cooking. Oh, great! And and Chucky, you? Yeah, I know. Yeah, send him by a cooking. That's fantastic. Oh, I feel bad for you there. He gets up at eleven o'clock, cooks, and then goes to bed. You know, at like four. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> All right, Chuck, you cleaner or or more upheaval? Uh, I have three young kids. The oldest is five years old. It's it's a it looks like it starts off the day every day clean, but then by the end of the day, it's it's more upheaval, definitely. And let me just—I'll leave it with this last question: What is the one thing you're looking forward to when we when we start to get back to opening up again? Let Tom go first. All right, Tom. Um, golfing. 
Golf, and that's probably going to be pretty soon, golfing. They're opening up, uh, if I understand correctly, they're going to start opening up the courses like very, very quickly. Um, uh, Chucky, last word. I would say being able to do uh, what what I want when I want. Not not worrying as much about making sure you have a mask and, and hand sanitizer and everything when you're going places, even though I'm sure that will be around for sometimes. But uh, just the peace of mind will be better. That's a, that's a good one. True. I'll, I'll just throw mine out. Kevin, actually, before I say mine, Kevin, what's yours? Yeah, I'm kind of like a lot of Chucky's, uh, you know, simple things like, you know, I have a grocery store, you know, five minutes away from my house. And if I forget something at the, my big grocery run, I could usually just run back in and get the one thing. And now you can't. It's 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 difficult. So just doing the simple things and getting back to, you know, that quote unquote normal. Well, I'll say mine, you know, and it is a simple thing, but haircuts. That is the one thing that, you know, I do look forward to just being able to go get a haircut again. Gen- gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time. Great insights as always. Uh, thank you for joining us on Investments Unplugged. Thank you guys for oh, having thanks, us as always. Thanks for your time. Yep. Yeah, I think that was a great conversation. We haven't had Tom on on the, the podcast for quite a while. He was one of our first guests that we've had on. He's been extremely busy, you know, tough guy to, to get on the podcast. I'm so happy that he was able to get on there. And and I thought they offered some, uh, he and, and Chuck both offer some really good insights in terms of um, what they're doing and how they're thinking about the credit markets, given everything we know, given everything that the Fed is doing, in a recovery in the coming 12 to 24 months time frame. Yeah, and I, I, one thing I always love about hearing from Tom in this environment, um, that's that's his bread and butter. That's where he comes from is credit research and, and understanding the nuances of, of, of uh, corporations and the, the risks that involved in the bonds. And really as, as a portfolio, having the flexibility to, to move where they need to move in order to not only benefit from the upside opportunity in fixed income right now, but at the same time, move away from the areas where they're going to get hurt. And not just areas, but specific uh, investments and issues, uh, both on sovereign bonds as well as corporates. And, and that flexibility, I think, is really key looking at a, at a fixing income strategy in this kind of not normal environment. Well, it, it speaks to the removal of risks. Uh, we, we talked about the risks in the energy sector. At the beginning, at the onset, you talked about in the What You Need to Know, the risks of default. Well, if we can get a sense that, you know, yeah, the energy sector has some hair on it, we don't need to own it. You know, travel and leisure, gaming, you know, not the best places to be in a social distancing type of environment. No problem. We can move away from that. Retailers, you know, we can pull pull aside from that. You know, hey, what do we like? We like healthcare. We like some of the industrials that are out there. We like some of the sovereign debt that we can find not on this side of the world, but on the other side of the world where they've solved a lot of their problems. Um, this is, I think, the advantage of, of being fairly unconstrained. You know, you take the handcuffs off of a, a portfolio manager and you say, hey, you know, we just want you to build the best portfolio you can given the opportunity set that we have in front of us and watch what they do. And, and I think uh, uh, they gave... Uh, great examples of of some of those active decisions that help reduce risk and and put them in a better position to capitalize on the opportunities sovereign debt on the other side of the world and in, in emerging markets uh, specifically asia is where they've been moving to and 
when people talk about government debt uh, and government bonds, they, they immediately think about their own backyard and think about North America. And why are you buying, you know, 10-year bonds yielding you 1%? That's not the case in areas like uh, um, Indonesia and the Philippines and Malaysia. Uh, you're picking up much more attractive bonds and, and understanding, again, those risk-return opportunities. And that's key. And not to forget, we also have a huge team in Asia to help support uh, strategic income and make sure that they understand the lay of the land in that area and not making um, decisions in a bubble based in Boston. Exactly. Don't depend on the headlines. If you want the truth, go out there and get it yourself. So I think that's fantastic. Kevin, I didn't ask you. I was curious. Your house, cleaner or or more disheveled? Oh, my God. Disheveled. We've, we realize we have to... Um, kind of bite our tongue and let the kids uh, play a little bit. And, and uh, you know, we still clean up our, our living room every day. Uh, but uh, you got to let kids be kids sometimes and, and, and understand that the, uh, uh, you know, during the daytime, they can make a mess as long as they're willing to clean up before they go to bed. Yeah, I, I, our place is clean. Our, my guys are a little bit older than you, than your guys. I know that, yeah, but uh, a little bit. <laughs> but every once in a while, uh, we let them just you know run amok as well. And and you know what, they they are good. I'll say this, you know, despite all the challenges that we're going through, one of the beneficiaries of this is uh, is being to spend as much time with uh, with my family. I'm sure you feel the same with your family, your kids, uh, as we have been able to trying at times. But uh, but I said this just to my wife the other day. I said, you know what? I'm going to look back and saying the, the, one of the great things about this is being able to spend so much time with my kids that otherwise might not be able to do. When was the last time you spent this much time in a row without being on the road? Uh, never. Just uh, I, I don't remember. Like it it would have been it would have been easily 20 years ago that the last yeah, time for that me I, for me it was for me it's about 10 since I started working with you. Yeah, and and you know what? It's. Uh, it's one of those little blessings, right? You got to find the silver lining in things. And, and this is certainly one of the silver linings, uh, given what we're doing right now. So with that, Kevin, I want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank our guests and thank everyone for listening. This has been Philip Peterson. Uh, you've been listening to Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede Know Your Client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.